0: You are listening to Podkistry Refocused. From the Podkist and the Kiss FAQ podcast. Paul Stanley. to Episode 4 Paul Stanley. Stanley Bird Eisen was born January 20th, 1952, the second child of William and Eva Eisen. On his father's side, his grandparents, Harry and Rebecca Eisen, had separately immigrated to the United States prior to marrying in 1914. The 1925 New York census suggests that Harry was from Austria, Hungary, and Rebecca from Poland. By that time, their surname had been shortened to Eisen, with Eisenhalder being recorded in the U.S. 1920 federal census. By 1940, the family was living in the Bronx, with William working as a department store shipping clerk, Paul's mother, Eva Mena Heinrich Jontoff-Hutter had been born in Berlin in 1923. She and her mother fled to Holland during the rise of the Nazis. Eva's parents had divorced, and her father, Eric, had immigrated to the U.S. in 1929 and was working as a cook at the Taunton State Hospital. Eva, along with her mother, Bertie Mandel, and her mother-in-law, Ida Casket, then immigrated to the United States, arriving as a stateless non-citizen on the S.S. Zandam from Rotterdam in January 1940. Paul's parents married in September 1948. Their first and only other child, Julia Harriet, was born in November 1949. I grew up in a one-bedroom apartment in an Irish Catholic area.
1: We were the only Jews. My mom had been born in Berlin and had fled to escape the Nazis and the extermination of six million of our people. I grew up with people
0: around me with numbers on their arms. In Paul Stanley's book, Face the Music, Paul paints a conflicted and unhappy picture of his family life.
1: My parents may not have been very supportive of me, but then again, they were not very supportive of each other either. My mom, Eva, was domineering, and my dad, William, resented it. My mom portrayed herself as strong and my dad as meek. She considered herself the smart one. In actuality, my dad was very bright and well-read. He had graduated from high school at age 16. Had circumstances been different, he would have gone to college, but his family insisted he start working to help pay the bills, and he did. By the time I came along, my dad worked nine to five as an office furniture salesman. Taken out of necessity, the job was one that with time he came to accept, but never to embrace. My mother was a stay-at-home mom when I was little, but she had previously worked as a nurse and as a teacher's aide at a school for children with special needs. Eventually, she started back to work at a redemption center where people went to collect merchandise after filling books of stamps, accumulated through various customer loyalty programs offered by supermarkets in the 1950s. My mother's family had fled from Berlin to Amsterdam with the rise of the Nazis. They'd left everything behind and my mom's mother had divorced, which was rare at the time. After my grandmother had remarried, they'd moved to New York. Members of my mother's family were condescending toward other people, and they weren't beyond ridiculing me about my hair and clothes. I slowly came to realize there was no foundation for the arrogance and sense of self-righteousness shared by my mother's side of the family. They weren't successful, they were just dismissive. If you didn't agree with my mother, you frequently heard a derisive, Oh, please, delivered with a contempt that made it clear your opinion carried no merit at all. My dad's parents were from Poland and he was the youngest of four children. My dad told me his oldest brother, Jack, was a bookie and an alcoholic. His other brother, Joe, suffered from uncontrollable manic mood swings that crippled him throughout his life. And my father's sister, Monica, apparently surrendered to pressure from their mother not to leave the nest and never married. Even as a child, I couldn't help but see that expectation as manipulative and selfish on my grandmother's part. My dad spoke of a very difficult and unhappy childhood. He despised his father, who died before I was born. My parents were not happy people. I don't know what the basis for their marriage was beyond what later became known as codependency. They didn't provide anything positive for each other. There was no warmth or affection in the house. Returning
0: to census records, Paul's aunt was named Molly. If his home life and family were unhappy, then Paul had additional reasons to be miserable. He had been born with an ear deformity called unilateral microtia, a congenital deformity where the external ear is underdeveloped. In Paul's case, his ear canal was closed, leaving him not only deaf on that side of his head, but disabled And that the loss of one ear affects the ability to discern and process sound normally. I was born
1: deaf on my right side, and I had a, a birth defect. Uh, I had what's called a microtia, which is basically uh, not having an ear, having a crumpled mass of cartilage.
0: Worse still for Paul, it was the stigma of the deformity and the stares and cruel comments, regardless of innocence or malicious intent, and the inevitable emotional scars that they leave. I wasn't very
1: socially adept, and when you have a something physical that sets you apart from people. It's uh makes you really uh the target of unrelenting scrutiny and, and sometimes ridicule. And quite honestly, for me, the idea of becoming famous was a way to, to push it in people's faces and go, you see, you should have been nicer to me.
0: He recalled in his book Face the Music.
1: Children seem to detach the person from the deformity. I became an object instead of a little kid. But children weren't the only ones staring at me. Adults did too, and that was even worse. One day in a market on 207th Street, just down the road from our place, I realized one of the adults in line was staring at me like I was a thing instead of a person. Oh God, please stop, I thought. When somebody stares at you, it's not limited to you and that person. Treatment like that draws attention, and becoming the center of attention was horrific. I found the scrutiny and relentless attention even more excruciating than being taunted. Needless to say, I didn't have a lot of friends.
0: The obvious emotional pain that Stanley endured set him apart from other children. And with what Stanley describes as a troubled sister, he felt he was often ignored. He felt invisible. He suggests that he withered in a perpetual emotional winter at home. By his classmates, he was seen as a loner someone who stayed away from the mainstream. It was, in essence, the perfect setting for Paul to find solace in something, anything. In the Isons household, if there was one positive to be discerned from Paul's depictions of it, then other than the gift of life, Stanley's parents gave him the gift of music. His mother loved music. She had a true passion for a variety of music, and as a result, Stanley was exposed to a broad palette of sounds. Music became a refuge, and they shared their appreciation for culture and the arts with Stanley. The majesty and power of classical composers such as Mozart, Beethoven, Schumann, were a large contrast, or perhaps at times a soundtrack, to the emotional misery that Stanley endured. In those notes were beauty, power, magic, a lifeline, and possibly an escape. Paul told title Sean Brady, From very early on, I heard Beethoven's Emperor Concerto and Mahler's Ninth Symphony, Schumann and Mozart. My parents were music lovers who were also into Italian opera and show tunes. I was fairly well versed in all of that. But somehow, I went astray and found rock and roll. I would crank up Beethoven in the house, and it was glorious. The first time I went to a classical concert, I was pretty dismayed by the lack of volume. I was wondering, how do you turn this up? Some of that music is so stirring and so emotional, and to me, the volume was a key component. Weekends spent listening to the radio program, Live from the Met, with his mother, evolved into exploring the radio dial and discovering rock and roll and the acts of the day. Eddie Cochran, Little Richard, or any number of the late 1950s artists. What they were singing about became Stanley's dreams. They were vocalizing a world that Paul could only aspire to, a seemingly unobtainable utopia. Paul's grandmother soon purchased him his first record, a 78 record of All I Have to Do Is Dream by the Everly Brothers, released as a single in April of 1958. It was number one on all of the Billboard singles charts simultaneously. Instead of playing with other children, music became a cocoon Stanley could wrap himself in. Within the song, he was safe from the external world, the bullying, the stares, The name-calling, Feeling Different. It might be fair to call Alan Freed and Dick Clark Stanley's childhood friends. Alan Freed hosted The Big Beat on ABC for four episodes from July 12, 1957, before it was canceled due to an uproar over a black singer being broadcast dancing with a white girl. The show continued locally in New York on WNEW until 1959. Dick Clark, the host of American Bandstand, needs no introduction. He hosted the show from its national debut on ABC in August of 1957 through 1987. Paul recalled the event for Title Magazine in 2020. I think that almost everybody can remember Sunday at 8 o'clock, watching Ed Sullivan and seeing The Beatles. That was pivotal, of course. But before that, when other kids were outside playing Cowboys and Indians, I was watching Alan Freed's TV show, or watching Dick Clark on ABC Channel 7 with American Bandstand. Eddie Cochran doing Summertime Blues or Buddy Holly doing Peggy Sue. Music was a refuge for me, a place where I could live a fantasy. Like the young Gene Klein, Stanley Ison was drawn to the adulation of the crowd for the artist. The visual and audible display of the emotion his home was devoid of. The famous rock and roll DJ Alan Freed
1: started appearing on the TV around the same time as the national debut of Dick Clark's American Bandstand. The wildness and danger of somebody like Jerry Lee Lewis wasn't lost on me as he kicked his piano stool away and flung his hair around. What was lost on me was the sexuality of the music, not surprisingly given what I saw at home. The romantic fantasy I envisioned was clean and sterile and even as I got older, that's how I continued to view life. It would be many, many years before I realized what a song like the Shirelles' Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow was really about. Still, there was no argument these people were cool. They were cool because they were singing. They were cool because people were watching them and screaming for them. In that audience, these musicians had everything I craved as a young kid.
0: Adulation. Wow. Stanley Eisen's family moved to Queens in the early 1960s, where Paul's father worked as a furniture salesman. Paul attended public school 164. But even though his environment had changed, his life didn't. Immediately, he still separated himself off from the other children due to his disability, forgoing the opportunities at Hebrew school other children his age took so as not to endure the additional hours of teasing or discomfort such social interaction would have engendered. Paul told the Observer newspaper in 2014 that being Jewish played a part throughout his life. Quote, I grew up in an Irish neighborhood, And being a Jew was definitely a separating factor. We were aware we were Jews. When I went apartment hunting in New York in the mid-70s and wanted to look at apartments on Central Park and Fifth Avenue, the real estate agent told me, I can take you to the apartments you want to see or the apartments that will let you in. Television and AM radio carried not only the message of the music, but also helped break down barriers in our society. Along with the sounds of the Big Beat and the British Invasion, the Boss Jocks played the hippest and newest tunes from all over America. From the Garage Bands to Motown, from Philly Soul to Stax and the Memphis Horns, rock and roll was becoming more diverse as it was growing up into something bigger that reached across not only social and economic barriers, but race barriers as well. Along with television going from black and white to full color, Bands like The Temptations, The Four Tops, The Animals, and Ike and Tina Turner were now in the living rooms and radios of any house with a teenager. Much in the same way that Elvis had danced into America's Heart on The Ed Sullivan Show, so were the new talents and performers from all over the world. As venues would allow audiences to mix instead of having segregated shows, the world was changing. And a young Paul Stanley was noticing it as well as a young Gene Klein who would win first prize at a twist contest at school dances. Music was a way to fit in and get attention from your peers. Looking different was now cool. Whereas just a few years before, the calls for America's youth to conform was ever-present. Now with music, you had a license to find your voice and your look. Paul Stanley started exploring music at places such as Triborough Records in Jamaica, Queens, before the more electric sounds from across the Atlantic had invaded his psyche. All the music that Paul experienced and became a fan of would be filed away in his subconscious, later to find outlets in his own musical expression. It was the nature of music that an artist often draws from a plethora of influences in creating their own artistic expressions. And for Paul, his musical roots were much broader than the narrow shoehorning critics might later associate with him. Paul has shared an early love of soul and R&B, commenting in 2020. Quote, Long before I ever heard the great British bands, I grew up listening to Philly Soul, Motown, and so much more. I was lucky to see Otis Redding and Solomon Burke, among others. That music, and its storytelling, gave me strength and a hope even in some tough days. The great classics of that era are magical medicine for most. He had started singing, first copying the songs he heard on TV and performing for family members, and later in musicals at school. He, his sister, and one of her friends also sang a cappella for the family as children. For all the walls Stanley built, music was enough for him to courageously place himself in a situation of emotional danger in front of his peers, or worse in front of his parents. In school, Stan wasn't a good student. It wasn't that he was lazy or intellectually challenged, but simply a matter that his unacknowledged disability left him at an unavoidable disadvantage. School continued to be a challenge too.
1: When I was in grade school, I had tested my way into the gifted and talented track. At the start of junior high, I was once again placed with the gifted children. I wouldn't have made it on the basis of my grades. I was never a good student. But entrance to the gifted track was gauged purely on some sort of intelligence test. While my IQ apparently qualified me, I remained at the bottom of the class. I was the one they scratched their heads about. I guess they thought I didn't want to learn. What they failed to realize was that my ear put me at a terrible disadvantage. I simply couldn't hear a lot of what was said in class, and if I missed a sentence, I was lost. Once I got lost, I surrendered. I gave up because I'd lost the thread. At parent-teacher conferences, the teachers always told my parents the same things. He's bright, but he doesn't apply himself, or he's bright, but he doesn't work to his potential. No teacher ever told them he's bright, but he can't understand what I'm saying. Back then, kids didn't benefit from the recognition of learning disabilities. But my parents knew I was deaf in one ear, And yet, after every parent-teacher conference, they came home and admonished me. God gave you this wonderful
0: brain, and you're not using it." His disability was a cause, yet not an excuse. His parents almost seemed to blame him for not applying himself when they knew of his deafness. It was an unrelenting, no-win situation for Paul, one that would have left him feeling trapped in a cycle of insanity had it not been for other outlets. A transistor radio proved to be a savior for Stanley. He would escape into a different world, a sanctuary of sorts. With the earpiece plugged into his soul-functioning ear, it opened new doors of discovery, and his control over the dial allowed him the freedom of exploration. It was safe, but exhilarating. Childhood friends recall that even in elementary school, Stan was really into music. Like millions of others, Stanley would be supremely affected by the Beatles' performances on The Ed Sullivan Show on February 23, 1964. While he had just turned 12 years old, this moment provided a musical epiphany. He recalled in his book, Face the Music, As I watched them singing, it hit me. This is my ticket out.
1: Here was the vehicle I could use to rise out of misery, to become famous, to be looked up to, to be liked, to be admired, to be envied. And with no rational basis, I convinced myself, I can do that. I can touch that nerve. I had never played a guitar in my life, and I certainly had never written a song. And yet, this was my ticket out. I just knew
0: it. Stanley realized that music which was already figuratively providing him a way out of his misery, could also literally do so. What he saw on that screen was the antithesis of his existence. They were adored, the adulation of the screaming horde transparent in the emotions expressed. The musicians were loved. They were on a pedestal of respect. For someone who has not experienced what Paul experienced during his youth, it might be difficult to understand or empathize with. As Paul mentioned in the a and biography history documentary special, I'm a little overweight kid named
1: Stanley Bert Eisen. I'm deaf in one ear, but I see the Beatles and I
0: go, I can do that. I can touch that nerve. Why I thought that, God only knows. That's a pretty stunning summation of his situation at the time, married with a less-than-happy home life and a social stigmatization. With no experience with any instrument to date, Stanley decided he could do this. For those who have lived without a physical difference or disability, physical or otherwise, it's sometimes difficult to explain or understand the crushing weight it can place on a person's well-being. Naturally, as with many others having experienced that epiphany, it quickly led to further conflict with his parents as he started to grow his hair.
1: Immediately, I started to grow my hair out aspiring to a Beatles mop top. Partly I did it for style, but it was obvious why the style appealed to me. I could cover the stump I had instead of a right ear. Somehow,
0: this was lost on my parents. They badgered me as my hair grew out and threatened to cut it. They couldn't understand that he wasn't becoming a hooligan, but instead using his hair as a shield to hide his disformed ear from curious gazes. If he couldn't be successful learning in school, he was serious about learning music. Paul spent the rest of 1964 begging his parents for an electric guitar for his next birthday. He was also an avid student enveloped by the British invasion. Glad all over, bits and pieces, don't let the sun catch you crying. Can't Buy Me Love, and Do You Love Me, Bad to Me, and Can't You See That She's Mine, were among the many songs by British acts to hit the U.S. charts at the time. For his 13th birthday, Paul was given an acoustic guitar. It wasn't what he wanted, but his initial disappointment didn't dissuade him from pursuing music. He could still sing, and met other neighborhood kids who wanted to jam. No guitar, no problem, he'd sing. His first band wasn't serious. It was just for fun, and the other kids, or their parents, had different plans for their futures. Paul wanted something else. He wanted to be the same as the bands he saw on television. Eventually, he took out the acoustic guitar from under his bed and started practicing. He even took some lessons, but soon found his speed of learning was different from that dictated by his teachers. One of Stan's early bandmates' parents were, as he described them, sort of proto-hippies, so there were plenty of records with the sort of music they enjoyed at that time around their house, where Stan would hang out. It would be through their collection that Stan discovered Bob Dylan and Phil Oakes among other contemporary folk acts while his interest in the current music remained steadfast. After a couple of lessons and pointers from his guitar-playing bandmates, the first song Stan learned to play was the folksy, Down in the Valley. He also tinkered with the harmonica for a full Dylan effect. By all accounts, he was pretty good, too. In the summer of 1965, Stanley played his first gig, at a rally for Republican Representative John Lindsay's successful mayoral campaign. It still wasn't serious. Most of the band members were going to become doctors or lawyers or optometrists. Not Stanley. He was at school learning. Paul's childhood friends concurred. Paul was serious about becoming a rock and roll performer. As the British invasion continued apace and the U.S. bands took inspiration from the new sounds being created, Stan knew that an acoustic guitar wasn't going to cut it. He saved, and with money from his 14th birthday, bought his first electric guitar, a Vox 3 quarter size Stratocaster clone. Stanley was soon sequestered in his room, listening to records and his trusty transistor radio, playing his guitar. By 1967, he had been accepted to the High School of Music and Art in Manhattan, whose alumni included Pete Yarrow, Laura Nairo, Michael Kamen, and Janice Ian. Having struggled in traditional school due to his disability, the Castle on the Hill would, in theory, allow Stan to focus on his artistic talents. There was one problem. Where he may have been a standout artist in junior high, he was now in a magnet school that had attracted the standouts from the surrounding area many of the students far exceeded his abilities and stan wasn't interested in competition nor did he feel he could simply create to someone else's schedule stan also wasn't necessarily interested in the arts as such it was simply a place to go away from the stairs and the challenges that he'd faced in regular school as he put it in his autobiography Quote, Instead of being the freak in school, I'd go to a school of freaks. School had become somewhere to go, not something to do. Stan would skip school to go to record stores to listen to albums. His visual, artistic aspirations dissipated, and he focused all of his energies on music. He'd hang out in a head shop named Middle Earth. Paul reminisced about the New York musical adventures to Rock seller magazine. Quote, There was a place in New York City called the Record Hunter, and that place was great because they actually had booths and turntables and you could ask them for records. And when I used to not find my way to school, I would find my way to record stores and listen to music and Triborough Records with such a place. There were James Brown albums there way before James Brown was in the consciousness of most of America. It was a place that I loved going to. I also loved going to music stores on 48th Street in Manhattan. There were two places where I would escape in Manhattan. I would go to 48th Street, where at one time there were probably 12 music stores selling guitars, amps, and drums. It was like going to a car showroom for a car nut. And the other one was Triborough Records. And if nothing else, it opened my eyes that there was much more music than what I was aware of.
1: I was this massive Anglophile. and on. Um, once a week, I would take the bus to the subway and the subway down to 8th Street in the village, Greenwich Village, and go to the international newsstand and pick up Melody Maker, NME, Sounds, and read about all these, these great bands. So,
0: But Paul was also living in the right place at the right time, New York City. Well, it was a musical mecca. Paul recalls, I'm very much a product of New York. In fact, there were so many concerts that I could go to all of the time, virtually every weekend. It was just amazing. And the beauty of the concerts I saw in New York was that the Bills were always very eclectic. Music needs variety. What I miss now is that diversity that we used to have. When you would go to a concert and see Led Zeppelin with Woody Herman's orchestra opening up, that was amazing. Or Buddy Guy opening up for The Who, Traffic, Blue Cheer, and Iron Butterfly. Just these unbelievably eclectic events. People were much more accepting of that kind of diversity, and New York was just abuzz with that kind of stuff. I saw the Yardbirds with Jimmy Page and Vanilla Fudge opening up. It was beautiful. New York was just a wonderful scene. And of course, there were the R&B and soul bands that he would see and borrow from. Imagine the impact of a little Stevie Wonder demanding the audience clap with their hands just a little bit louder in
1: 1963.
0: Or James Brown commanding from the stage with pure dynamic power and energy. Or the mighty Levi Stubbs in the timeless four tops and their standing in the shadows of love. Like the plethora of countries or origination, or languages spoken or religions practiced, the city was a melting pot. A veritable all-you-can-eat buffet of music and culture, and Paul Stanley was starved. Paul recounted part of this musical education to title Sean Brady. I was lucky enough to go to the Fillmore East almost every weekend. New York was so fertile at this point. On any given weekend, you could see The Who, Led Zeppelin, Vanilla Fudge, Humble Pie, Derek and the Dominoes, the list just goes on and on, for 3 4 and $5. I saw Jimi Hendrix twice with Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. For me, it was not only pleasure, it was a learning experience. You were seeing the Masters, and frankly, I studied it. It was a great, great education. Before I ever heard Led Zeppelin, I had heard Otis Redding. I saw The Temptations. I saw Solomon Burke. I saw Bluegrass Hootenannies with the Greenbrier Boys and Dave Van Ronk playing down in the village. I listened to a lot of doo-wop, Dion and the Belmonts, the Elegance, the Impalas. It was all part of my daily menu, and it all found its way into what I was doing in one form or another. I saw Solomon Burke.
1: I saw Otis Redding, I saw The Temps, you know, that, that's, um, he was phenomenal, you know, I saw him, I had actually, the funny story was, I was going to see Bo Diddley, and, and the announcer comes out on stage and says, Bo Diddley won't be appearing tonight, there's a 13-state alarm out for his arrest. Instead, we have Otis Redding, it was like, my night, phenomenal, just ridiculous.
0: Paul had started playing in bands in middle school, while attending Parsons Junior High, with friends such as Neil Tiemann and Matt Rail. Neil described the band, quote, The band was one of those on and off situations. We'd be together, break up, reform. There are a lot of things going on in our lives at the time. We also were never all that happy with the name of the band. So it was always changing. I think we were Ratabagas before we became Incubus. But the story of how we became Uncle Joe's was this. Stan's dad's boss had t-shirts made with his face printed on them for a company picnic and got us all some. We decided to wear those shirts when the band played, and since the boss's name was Joe, we called the band Uncle Joe. According to Stan, the band, Uncle Joe, was basically little more than a garage band that turned the amps up to 10 and go wherever the resulting noise took them. They'd play covers such as the Outsiders, Time Won't Let Me, 96 Tears, Nobody But You and Songs by the Lovin' Spoonful and the Yardbirds. Paul later recalled in the book Kistory, We took it as a huge compliment that while we were rehearsing at a farm in upstate New York, We got complaints from three miles away. Once he started gaining proficiency with the guitar, he started writing songs. Uncle Joe would record one of Paul's early efforts, Stop, Look to Listen, at Mayfair Studios, which would be included on the KISS box set in 2001. While that recording was dated 1966, it was likely recorded closer to 1970, during his senior year in high school, Neil was working as an engineer at the studio for Jay and the Americans and was able to use comp time to record his own band. Neil recalled, I used to set up the room so Uncle Joe could rehearse, and then I'd let the tape roll without anybody at the controls. That was how we recorded those tapes. We later dubbed in the vocals, but Stanwood just put something down on one tape. I don't think he really knew how to sing well in the studio yet. We were just practicing. Later, we would listen back to the tapes to evaluate our playing and arrangements. We were really learning then. We didn't know what we were doing. Around this time, he was also writing songs such as Firehouse, Inspired by the Move, and Sunday Driver. I was a big Move fan,
1: and in New York, you would would have this uh, English Power Hour once a week where they would play the top ten in England. I heard this band, which I loved, The Move, and uh, the song that they had a hit with at the time was Fire Brigade. And I couldn't remember the song. I couldn't afford import albums. So what I would do is kind of like, okay, what do I remember of that song and write my own song? So Firehouse actually came about from Fire Brigade.
0: Stan wasn't such a loner that he didn't know anyone in high school. He was friends with Marty Cohen. Marty recalled that the two met during their freshman year. I'd meet him now and then and we'd take the train together. He used to live on Main Street in Queens and I used to come from down Jamaica Estates. We were friends, we knew each other and I think we even had two classes together. Funny thing was he was an art student and I was a music student. We used to meet and play and sometimes cut classes and jam in the auditorium. Stan soon progressed in playing with older musicians Matt's older brother, John, had a band, Post-War Baby Boom, who needed a rhythm guitarist. When invited to join, Stan jumped at the opportunity. Neil recalled, Matt's brother, John, was a few years older than us, and he played with Post-War Baby Boom. We all looked up to him. Later, there were times when Stan left us to play in Post-War Baby Boom. Then, after a few gigs, he'd come back to us, and we'd reform post-war baby boom had also recorded a song titled never living never loving paul had written the song after an a&r man for columbia records thought that the band had some promise paul recalled in his book face the music i wrote a song for us to
1: record called never loving never living but i was too shy to play it for the band until the day before we were supposed to cut it And then our female vocalist decided to go for a swim in the fountain in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village the night before, and she caught a cold and lost her voice. When we showed up in the studio the next day, my first time ever in a real recording studio, she couldn't sing. To top it all off, the CBS exec told us he wanted to rename the band The Living Abortions.
0: The demo never got finished. Unfortunately, Stan allegedly doesn't know what happened to the recording of Never Living, Never Loving, apart from the fact that it was recorded at Columbia, and never got a vocal recorded on it. He recalled in history, I was still in junior high and the rest of the band were high school seniors. It was pretty frustrating at times being the youngest in the band, and the only one who had a clue what it took to make it. Needless to say, the demo session at Columbia was a disaster. By the fall of 1968, Stan was out of the band, replaced by someone closer in age to the rest of the band. With a reel-to-reel tape recorder and his guitar, Stan soldiered on, often alone. He recalled in Face the Music. I was such a
1: loner that making a career in music on my own somehow made perfect sense, so I spent a good deal of my junior year calling around to publishing companies and talking my way into auditions to showcase material. The one I remember best was at the Brill Building, because the place was already legendary to me. I went in with my guitar, sat in an office opposite someone who had agreed to meet me, and played songs to this stranger. The funny thing was that while I had always been extremely wary about opening myself up by bringing songs to the band, I found it easy to play them for people I didn't know. But even though some of the people were very nice and encouraging, nobody signed me. I still had a lot to learn about my craft.
0: By 1970, Uncle Joe were becoming more serious as a band and deciding what they wanted to do as high school came to an end. Stan hedged his bets and enrolled at Bronx Community College, lasting a week. At this time, guitarist Matt Rell decided to leave the band. Friction had been building between he and Stan. He'd not faced the audience while playing. And played so loud, Stan and Neil couldn't hear themselves the band split neil recalled the end of the band when matt left the band my buddy marty cohen recommended stephen cornell and he joined us at that time stephen tried to get gene in the band at that time and we had all met at cornell's apartment in washington heights new york city and stan and Jean didn't get along at first i remember riding back to queens with paul stanley and he ranted, who does he think he is about Gene? Uncle Joe had never had a full-time bass player. And Stephen thought it was important to have one. Stan also knew that he hadn't had any success working on his own. And that a band was necessary. Stanley and Gene did not hit it off. Paul recalls in Face the Music. Gene had long hair and
1: a beard under his double chin. He was very overweight. I was pretty stocky back then, but this guy was huge. He was wearing overalls and sandals and looked like something from the then-new country music TV show Hee Haw. Gene made it clear right away that he didn't see us as his musical equals. He played some songs for us that I thought were sort of goofy. Then he challenged me to play one of my songs, so I played something called Sunday Driver, which I later retitled Let Me Know. He seemed completely thrown that someone besides John Lennon, Paul McCartney and Gene Klein could write a song. It was a moment of realization for him. He was another guy who wasn't famous who could actually write a song. He was visibly taken aback. He mumbled, hmm. I was annoyed that he saw himself as operating at a level that qualified him to pass judgment on me, as though all that mattered was his approval. Particularly because I hadn't thought much of his songs, the idea that he was judging me seemed arrogant, condescending, and ludicrous. He made it clear that he felt himself to be judging from a higher plane and I didn't like that at all. Gene, of course, had no clue about my ear, which was covered up by my hair. But I was pre-programmed to dislike being scrutinized and judged. It wasn't a nice thing to do as far as I was concerned and I wasn't
0: eager to work with the guy. So they didn't. Stan, Steven, and Marty recalled a different sequence of events, recalling that Gene came to see the band playing at a club on Columbus Avenue because he was friends with Steve and had lent the band equipment. Marty recalled, It was this sort of place where you'd go downstairs, and it was built out of styrofoam to look like a cave. At the time, we were playing with Stan Singer on the drums. I think it was called Tree. I really don't remember the name we had for it. Gene came down to see us play, and that was really where he first met Paul Stanley. Basically, Steve's infight because Steve and Gene were very good friends, and so Gene came down to see Steve's band, and of course, I knew Gene because I'd been in a band with him up at Sullivan Community College. So he came to see me too. And although he was much more of a friend to Steve than me, because they had childhood friendship, and I was just in a band with him, and we had parted ways, and I came down to New York. Still, the circle was tightening. Marty was planning on departing the band, and he thought that Gene would make a good replacement. However, Gene was working on demos with Brooke Ostrander at the time, trying the solo publishing route that Paul had already failed at. He was also putting a band together. Paul recalled answering an ad in the Village Voice from a band looking for a guitarist. He called and reached Brooke, but was soon turned down since they were looking for a lead guitarist and not a rhythm guitarist. Out of rejection, Gene soon called Paul and asked him to help him with some demos he was working on. Gene had liked what he had seen of Paul Stanley in that club. He had a presence, a confidence, or as Paul once described it, much to the annoyance of Steve and Aura. Paul recalls, Working with Gene
1: like that, I could see that we had some things in common. His family were Holocaust survivors. He was smart and serious. Even though he and Brooke were working in New Jersey, Gene turned out to live only about 15 minutes away from me in Queens. It also turned out that he'd had a band upstate during college, and they had played live quite a lot. He had a lot to offer. He could sing well and play bass well. He could write songs. Perhaps most importantly, Gene was focused. One thing I had figured out by then was that talent, like everything else, was just a starting point. What counted was what you did with it. I knew I wasn't the most talented guitar player, or the best singer, or the best writer, but I could do all of those things, and I had a complete vision of what it was going to take to succeed. A vision that included working, working,
0: working. For Stanley Ison, he had discovered a musical partner. One who shared a vision for success built on hard work. He quickly realized that he was stronger with Gene than he would be on his own. And that as a team, they might very well become winners rather than wannabes. He was obnoxious. But look, I'm the first to admit
1: that uh, the chances of success, certainly on the level that we've had, the chances of that were slim and none. Meeting Gene was, was the key to it all. Gene and I liked the same kind of music and we could sing harmonies well together. I decided I wanted to work with him. I could see a bigger picture now, and despite his idiosyncrasies as an only child, teamwork was not Gene's strong suit, we both were intelligent enough to know how to harness ambition.
0: And after all, it would be a lot easier to slay the dragon with a second person to help. Stan was realizing that Stanley Eisen was not a very rock and roll name. He needed something less ethnic and more mainstream. That possibly a name like Paul Stanley could take them to mainstream success and... The Promised Land. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons would soon start work on the band that would become Wicked Lester. Podkistory Refocused is an audio documentary about the early years of KISS, a joint program between the podcast and the KISS FAQ podcast. Any samples of music or TV heard here remain the property of their owners. Opinions heard here do not necessarily reflect the views of our staff. If you like something you've heard, buy it today. Support the art and the artist. If you enjoy the show, like KISS FAQ or the podcast on Facebook or Twitter, and please rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Podkistry Refocused. You just said that.